on? Okay, the recording is on. And the story begins. <laughs> so we're on chapter 8, which is page 104. This chapter is kind of a continuation from chapter 7 and 6. So we're kind of continuing directly what we were discussing last week. We were elaborating on the concept of klipa, negative energy. Klipa, we said, literally means a shell. Because we look at the shell and we assume that, that you know, we, we judge life by what meets the eye, which is the outer shell, the outer peel, not realizing there's a fresh fruit inside, there's much more, there's much, a, there's much greater depth to the world beyond what our eyes see. Um, that husk that, that's blinding us is, is klipa. How do I know if by soul activity, my soul's activity, my activity, is klipa or not? In other words, what is classified as klipa? And what is classified as not klipa? We said the general, in general, the, the crossroad that the soul faces, or that the person faces, or which soul am I going to be behaving with? Which soul is motivating my behavior, right? In other words, is my behavior going to be klipa-oriented, or is it going to be divinely-oriented? Anything which surrenders itself to God, we refer to that as bitzel. Um... You guys can hear me okay, right? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, Much better than last week. Okay, good. Perfect, perfect. If there's any terms I need to write down, like so to give you visuals, let me know. Um, we referred to this idea as bitzel. Bitzel means I'm surrendering, something that is surrendered to something larger than itself. So if it centers around God, it's bitzel. It becomes holy. If it centers around not God, of itself oriented, it falls under the level of klipa. And we said there's two levels of klipa. There's one level of klipa that can go either way. It can be directed either way. It can be surrendered towards God and become holy. It may be surrendered more selfish, selfish, uh, self-orientedly. I don't know if that's a word. Um, and and degrade itself temporarily. So, for example, a piece of kosher meat. It's kosher, nothing wrong with it, it's all good. Why am I eating it? Because it's going to give me energy to pray. It's going to give me energy to, to um, take part in this Tanya class or any Dora class. It's going to give me, it's going to be part of my Passover meal, part of my Shabbat meal. It's, using, it's being used for something holy, for something divine. It's going to be used to feed the poor. These are all just examples. That piece of kosher meat became holy. And that's why it's referred to as mutar. The Hebrew word for mutar. The Hebrew word mutar literally means permitted. Sorry, it does not literally mean permitted. It's understood as permitted. It literally means released. Um... If I used that meat just to indulge, if it was just pure indulgence, then it temporarily gets covered by this clip. 
There's this spiritual shell covering it, hiding it, and it's less God aware of God, less conscious of God. Um, that that example is specifically for food, but this applies in a broader context. It could apply to speech as well. The greatest of sages, the great sage Rava in the Talmud, would open his lesson, his Torah lesson, with a joke, with a humorous remark. It wasn't a, a holy speech or anything, but it was used for something holy. It got people engaged in his Torah lesson, right? The table that you're using right now to study on all of a sudden becomes holy because we're using it for a holy purpose. It, um, if we used it for unholy things, it would be an unholy, unholy purpose. Un, and it would be unholy uh, activity. That, that's why all the, it's always important. We always make a point that at the dinner table, and especially on Shabbos, but in general at the dinner table or, at, or during lunch, whatever it is, we're eating together. We recite the Var Torah. We recite words of Torah, share an insight. Because now it didn't just become indulgence, it became something holy. It became centered around God, not just centered around ourselves. And now that table became holy, the food became holy, everything became holy. Right now, because of the coronavirus, technology is all of a sudden becoming super holy, more holy than it ever was. Because you look all over Facebook, and although there is a lot of negativity on Facebook, there's a lot of positivity as well. There's a lot of Torah classes going on, bringing holiness to the mundane. This all works for the neutral type of klipa, right? Now, what happens to, the, there is a level of klipa, which is not neutral. It's actually explicitly negative, can't be elevated. And those are things that are not mutar, but as we call them in Hebrew, asr. Writing on my screen, on the screen here, the word asr translates often as prohibited, good translation, but it's literally translated as bound, as tied. Why? Because it's, why is it prohibited? Because it's bound, it cannot be elevated. There's no way to elevate something that's asur. Something which the Torah prohibits can't be elevated. And this is how he opens up our chapter, um, chapter 8. He says, furthermore, the first bold paragraph on page 104, furthermore, there's a, the reason, there's a reason why non-kosher foods are called isor, chain, bound. And not just food, it's really any prohibited activity. Food is just an example. Jews love giving examples of food. <laughs> just the way it is. <laughs> because even if you inadvertently eat a Forbidden food for the sake of heaven. It might be, it's not kosher. It's bound, it's prohibited, even if it was eaten for the sake of heaven. Right? You, you try to use the food's energy to worship God. And you actually fulfill that intention. Unlike the case of kosher food, it cannot be uplifted. It's chained, it's bound. It won't be uplifted, it won't work. The only way to elevate non kosher food or any non kosher activity. The way we elevate it is by refraining from it, by staying away from it. That's the only way to elevate it. Now, there is two other ways to elevate it, actually. Number one, we said when Mashiach comes, the entire world will be elevated. As um, explicit from 
Isaiah's prophecies about when Mashiach comes, that the world will be refined and impurity, God will be, remove all impurity, so God can elevate it, right? But in the meantime, hopefully this will be soon, but in the meantime, the way we elevate it is either by refraining from it, or if we've already um, indulged in that activity, so then we can do teshuva, teshuva from love. Not the, there's different levels of teshuva, literally translated as repentance, but teshuva, a better translation is its literal translation, return. Um, teshuva means to return, and when we return, not out of fear, but out of love, out of passion, it actually elevates our past. What about in a situation where you're saving a life? Like, suppose there is no other food, and the okay, only good, food good you question. can have is non-kosher food, whether you're saving your own life or somebody else's. Does that take a higher priority? Good question. Good question. So because you're permitted to have that food to save a life, most prohibitions, most Torah prohibitions, with the exception of three, we'll get to the, what those three are in a second, but most Torah prohibitions are permitted uh, when it's life and death, when it's a life and death situation. So now that it's permitted, it, it, it became released. In that situation, it's not considered not kosher. It's considered kosher, and it became released. It became mutar released, so you can now you can elevate it. Um, mo most prohibitions are suspended when it comes to life and death. The three exceptions, anybody know? Bowing down to idols. Good idolatry. Um, murder. Good. And um, uh, lewd acts. Yep, exactly. Idolatry, adultery, and murder. Those are the three that we. Um, we have to, we cannot, you know, we have, generally we choose life over death when it comes to Torah and mitzvahs, and those are the three exceptions. What? So if you kill, well, is self-defense, even though the person dies, considered murder? No. No, no. No. But if somebody were to tell you, if you don't murder this person, I'll murder you, you don't have the liberty of getting to murder that person to save your own life. I shouldn't say you, somebody. Um, whereas I thought that if you murdered somebody, you go to one of the, the cities that murderers go to, I forgot the name of them. Yeah. The, the city of, of refuge. Yeah, correct. It, it, so if somebody accidentally murdered somebody, there's the city of refuge. Do they get to become, they don't have to give up their life then, do they? No. Cause it was, the, that's in a case where it wasn't, uh, an, an intentional murder. If it was an intentional murder with witnesses and stuff, then there, there's a whole court proceeding. Um, but if it was unintentional, they go to the to the the city of refuge. But you, a person's not allowed to intentionally murder to save their own life. They're allowed to do self-defense. In fact, the Torah says explicitly that if somebody breaks into your home, it's a clear verse in Torah. Somebody's tunneling into your home and you feel your life is threatened, he says, kill him before he kills you. But if somebody says, wants to use you as their hitman, God forbid, so th and, and threatens and, and says your life is dependent on it, it doesn't work. And the same applies with idolatry, the same applies with adultery. On the, con on the other hand, with, with other mitzvahs, if somebody says, eat kosher, eat, eat non-kosher, or I'll kill you, God forbid, we can eat the non-kosher. 
or if we're stuck on an island and the only non the only food available is non kosher food, so that we have that ability, we're allowed to eat that. Um, or if somebody says break Shabbat, or I'll murder you, we're allowed to. Or or if God forbid there's a life threatening situation that takes place on Shabbat, we're allowed to to break the Shabbat. We're allowed to break Shabbos in order to save a life. Um, in in highly populated Jewish communities, you have what's called Hatzalah. Hatzalah is a, um, it's basically a volunteer medical group. They have a few ambulances and they're, some of them are paramedics. Some of them are, what's, what's, a, what's a step below paramedic? EMT. EMT, there we go. Some of them are EMT, some of them are paramedics, some of them are actually doctors and MDs. And it, it, it works a lot better than an ambulance, than, than calling 911, because 911 is stationed. These people are kind of in the community all over the place. So the response time in, in a highly populated Jewish community for Hatzalah is usually one to two minutes. The response time for 911, you know, especially in, you, you know, could be five, 10, 15, 20 minutes. These people that work for Hatzalah carry their radios on Shabbat. Even though we don't use radios on Shabbat, we don't use cell phones on Shabbat. And we don't carry on Shabbat. They can, they use all these things and will be driving ambulances on Shabbat because they're saving a life. And it's totally uh, permissible and it's encouraged. It's important. My brother's father-in-law, um, he, they used to live in Crown Heights. They moved to Muncie. Um, we say Muncie Ir HaKodesh, the holy city of Muncie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we lived one town over from Muncie, so <laughs> we're pretty familiar with it. <laughs> there we go. So my, my brother's father-in-law lived in Crown Heights up until recently, and he worked for Hatzalah. He was a volunteer member for Hatzalah. He was an EMT. He might have been a paramedic, actually. And you'd be sitting at his Friday night Shabbat table, and imagine the, 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 the environment that we're supposed to experience Friday night with the candles and the Shabbat table, and nobody has their phones or anything. All of a sudden, you hear beep, 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 beep. And he pulls out his walkie-talkie, grabs his backpack, jumps in the car and he's going to save a life. And he's not considered desecrating Shabbos. He's, he's saving a life. Now it becomes a holy thing. But in a regular case, when kosher food is available, um, and we're not, our life's not dependent on it, these things are asur, are prohibited. And the word asur means they're chained, they're bound, they're tied. The only way to elevate it is if we already partook in that activity. So now we could do teshuva from love. And when we do the right teshuva, it will elevate our past because our past motivates our return. Real teshuva is when my negative past motivates me to go further. So now it's part of my journey. It's part of my return and it becomes holy. Okay. Now what we say in our chapter though is it's an interesting chapter. Because it, it, it's something which is not really elaborated a lot um, in in Hasidic um, literature, and it's not well. It is a little bit, but it's definitely not spoken about in Hasidic culture. The concept of punishment in Judaism, you don't really hear about it too much in Hasidic life, um, in, in Hasidic culture. And, and Tanya is a book of Hasidicism. So it, it's an in, and for that reason, it's a very interesting chapter. Maimonides 
writes in his what? Well, I'm telling Murray that it talks about purgatory. Exactly. So Maimonides writes in his 13 principles of faith. Maimonides narrowed down Judaism into 13 principles, um, 13 core beliefs in, in Judaism. And one of them are, you're familiar with the song Animamim? That I believe with complete. So those are that's taken. The lyrics are taken from one of the from one of my monody's thirteen principles, his core beliefs of Judaism. One of the thirteen principles of faith, my monody says, is the belief of reward and punishment. That God rewards us for our good behavior; He punishes us for our bad behavior. In Hasidic culture, and especially Chabad Hasidic culture. Reward and punishment is not focused on. We believe with complete belief. It's a core of our Jewish belief. But it's not the focus of our belief in Hasidic culture. In, in, in Hasidic philosophy, the focus is our relationship with God. Not so much what's God going to do to me if I do or don't do this. But the focus is more on our souls. The focus is more on the relationship. But reward and punishment is a reality. And the Alter Rebbe cites three different punishments. And it's important to realize they're not so much punishments as they are consequences. And actually, they're not really consequences. They're more really ways of cleaning us up. When we've indulged in, let's say, permitted behavior, but we did it for the, it wasn't for the sake of heaven, right? It didn't center around God, it centered around ourselves. Okay, so I do teshuva, and okay, I'm all good. I rerouted all of my behavior, my indulgences, even though they were worth permitted activities, the meat was kosher, right? It was all good, but, but it was self-oriented. I rerouted it. So he says, however, where are we? If you look on the bottom of page 106, sorry, the middle of 106, section two, Klippa detoxification. So the middle bold paragraph also, even after a Klippas Noga experience has reverted to holiness from the domain of the three impure Klippas, right? Because I did Teshuvah, a trace of it still remains attached to the body since all of the food and drink becomes the body's flesh and blood right away. Right, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. What I eat becomes part of me. So even though it was kosher food, because if it was done with the wrong intention, it became a part of me. Now I did teshuva, I've elevated it, but part of it still remains in me. In the next world, when my body leaves, when my soul leaves the body after 120 years, I'll need what's called chivut hakever. If you look in the next bold paragraph, therefore, since the body was temporarily a home for the three inholy in klippas, even though it's temporary because I elevated it, I did shuva, the body must go, undergo this process called chivut hakever. What is chivut hakever? Translates, uh, it's, it's some sort of cleansing. It's a cleansing process. And to to... It's basically this process where the body or the soul gets gets shaken. I'll give you an analogy. In the Lechadodi prayer, the Lechadodi prayer that we recite Friday night as we usher in Shabbos. So one of the we're familiar with the Lechadodi, right? 
one of the um, phrases is hitna ari me'afar kumi, right? Hitna ari me'afar kumi. Hitna ari, shake me, me'afar from my dust. We talk about shake me from my dust. So the analogy I heard for this is imagine you have a chicken and a chicken is supposed to be, was misbehaving and rolling around in dirt. You have tons of dirt enmeshed in its feathers. You could go to the chicken, you could start brushing it. You could take a brushing, and you'll get some of the dirt off, but it's still going to be a dirty chicken. What does the chicken do? It takes its wings, gives one big flap, all the dirt is off. All the dirt is off. And that's what we say, shake me from the dust that is before me. Sometimes we need just one big shake, everything comes off. And that's kind of the idea of chivut akever. That's the idea of this punishment, this idea of chivut akever. It's this big shake, shaking off all the dirt. And it's, it's more of a spirit, in a spiritual sense, not in the literal sense, more in a spiritual metaphorical sense. The next cleaning process he mentions Where are we? He's on the bottom of 107. It's called Kaf Hakela. Kaf Hakela in the third to last line of the page. Translated as the hollowing of the sling. Worthless discussion, not dedicated. And it's basically the soul is kind of slinged back and forth. So you know that, I don't know if you guys trace back to high school. Think a moment, back to high school. You're a lot younger than us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One second. I'm going to give you some imagery. You're going to remember this. <laughs> or even college. Or if you want elementary school, you can, either of them. You're sitting in class and you have this super boring professor. Yeah. Boring, 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 boring. How did I end up in this class? I don't know. Right? Remember those? We all had one of those at least. And we start dozing off. And the professor says, hey, no sleeping in my class. You wake up. And he starts threatening you. If you sleep in my class, you're out. You're doing everything you can to keep those eyes open. But he's just so boring. And you're sitting there and it's hot in the room. And it's like, right? So you're not sleeping, but you're not awake. In Yiddish, we say, nishta hi, nishta her. you're not here, you're not there. That's what kaf hakela is in a more metaphorical, spiritual sense. The soul doesn't have a sound experience. It's here, it's there, it's back, it's forth, it's it's nishtahe, nishtahe. And that's a cleansing process for the soul to re-experience um, negativity and positivity as it was in the physical sense, to re-experience it spiritually is a cleansing process for the soul. And that's kafakela. And that kafakela comes for from idle chatter. Idle chatter is chatter that was done not for the sake of heaven even though the chatter was not necessarily bad wasn't right i wasn't slandering i wasn't saying anything wrong but it was self-oriented not god-oriented it was under the domain of klipa so good i do teshuva i elevate it but a little bit of negativity still remains and that's where kafa kela comes in then there's the third hmm, question no, I'm just looking. I, I took worthless discussion, not dedicated to God, Katha Kela. Yeah. But so much of our discussion on a daily basis 
is not dedicated to God. It's um, you're, you're at work, you're discussing, uh, you know, the, the tools that the or somebody's at a car manufacturing plant and they're discussing making this car. Okay, good, good question, good question. So the end of the chapter addresses that somewhat. But you need to make that car to make a living to support your family, so you can, so you can live productive, meaningful Jewish lives. Right. That, so, so it's I, all part of the process. I had that in my notes too. It said it all becomes uh, holy. Right. Um, secular knowledge has a propensity towards self-ego. Self, so secular knowledge is good for earning a livelihood. But it exactly. Secular knowledge, but but, but it's also act, activity as well. In other words, okay. going going to work every day is not going to be considered necessarily. Oh, you're doing something unholy. You're doing a necessary evil. We're not saying that going to work is a necessary evil. Going to work is a beautiful thing. Going to work is a necessary thing. Going to work six days you shall work, the seventh day you shall rest. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a holy thing, yeah. and it's part of the process of earning a living. Now that you've earned a living, you can give charity. Now that you've learned a living, you could put matzah on your Passover table. Now that you've learned a living, you can support your family. You're doing holy things, and these are all holy things. So we're talking about more idle chatter that is literally just idle. And look, we all do that, and it's it's not uh, – there's – there's worse things out there, you know what I mean? <laughs> we're, and we're, but I'm, we're just discussing the spiritual effects. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, and because you know most the most conversations are are idle chatter. We're reading the newspaper over the breakfast table. Exactly. And you're discussing what's going exactly. on. Exactly. And these things aren't sins. The Torah doesn't prohibit that. And the question is, what what is the what is it? What, what is it oriented around, and what is the spiritual effect that's happening? But it's not something prohibited. It, it's temporarily gets part of the clip, and we can elevate it. Now, for, poor, for prohibitions, for things that are asur, that are literally bound, literally tied, like we said, when we engage in those activities, we need a deeper cleansing. You know, some people... Some people just need a, a, you know, a quick shower. Some people need like a real hose down. <laughs> you know, they need a, we need to put them through the drive through car wash. <laughs> and that's what Gehinnom is. Gehinnom we translate as hell or purgatory. And I, I think it's really important to understand that in Judaism, these are, you know, in the movies, and I think it's depicted this way in Christianity as well, hell is a punishment. And I, I, in many sects of Christianity, I can't speak for all of them, but I just know people that I've spoken to, um, reverends that I've spoken to, the, the religion centers around staying out of hell and going into heaven. That's what it's all about, which is really centers around me, my own comfort. The entire religion centers around my own comfort. I don't want to do this because I'll go to hell. I don't want to be uncomfortable. It's all about me. In Judaism, it's not a, it's centered around hell. Hell is just a cleansing process. All of these punishments are just cleansing processes. Now, being cleaned is uncomfortable. I know when I take my daughter, a nine-month-year-old, and she's not in the mood to get wet in a bath, 
and get shampoo all over her and then she's not in the, it's uncomfortable for her sometimes. Sometimes she likes it, but sometimes it's uncomfortable. It's not a punishment. We just need her to be clean, right? When a person passes away and their soul is going to go into the next world and experience God, in order to get the full experience, a person has to be clean. And that's what Gehinnom is. It's just a cleansing process. We translate in English Gehinnom. That was a backward statement. We translate in English Gehinnom. You know, like in, in, in these Yiddish communities in New York, they say, I threw my mother out the window, a towel, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like American Sign Language. So when my daughter writes in English, when my daughter writes in English, sometimes her English is backwards because that's how you would sign it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay, so, so, it's, so it's like Hebrew and Yiddish is like that as yeah. well. Yeah. Right. It's, it's amazing. We learned to speak English with, the, with that Yiddish, uh, with the, the Yiddish syntax. <laughs> you know, like you'll always say, "Cut me a piece of, cut me a piece of pie." Cut, if you stop the sentence, cut me. Right, cut, cut me a I, piece I, of I, pie. I didn't know sign language was like that as well. That's interesting. It, well, because it has its own syntax and grammar, and so sometimes, um, so sign language grammar is similar to Hebrew, like that, and Yiddish. Mm, interesting. In, in a lot of ways, yeah. Very yeah. interesting. So. Gehenna is translated as purgatory. What does purgatory mean? It's a purging process, right? A cleansing process. He references here two types of hell. There's Gehenna shall age, the hell of fire, and Gehenna shall shalag, the hell of snow. And I, I, I think it's important that we don't allow all the movies that we've watched to pervert our understanding of what Gehinnom really is. It's not necessarily this fiery pit with a Satan holding the pitchfork and he's wearing the horns and he's here to... It's... There's certain things that need to be cleaned with hot water. Certain things suffice to be cleaned and some certain things need to be cleaned with whole cold water, right? What setting do you use on your washing machine? You put it on, if it's white, right? You do hot water. If it's darks and colors, you use cold water. It depends on what the clothing is. It depends on what the sin is. It depends. So every person, some people need to go to the whole, the hell of snow. They need to be used, cleansed with cold water, with ice, so to speak, metaphorically. Some people need hot water. And these aren't punishments. These are just cleansing processes that may be uncomfortable. The way I've also read that it's explained, certain sins were com were were motivated by warmth, by passion. Certain sins were just neglect, were just out of coldness. And that's the hell of fire, the hell of snow. Um, I emailed you guys our text sheet, but if you don't have it, I'm just going to share the screen with you. It'll make it easier. And show you some references on what Judaism says about hell, because I think it's very interesting. Um, if I can share the screen, hold on. Okay. Can you guys see my screen? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, I'm on the wrong page. It's going to take yeah. me a while to scroll down. I'm sorry. Page 13. Page well, 13. Okay. It has 13, on the, it has 13 here. So. 13. Okay. I'm on 34. Let me just scroll all the way to 13. Hold on. Okay, there we go. 
Okay. Yeah, we printed it. Yeah. Oh, you printed it. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Took perfect. a while to get it, but I got it. Okay, perfect. Um, so on our screen here, text or, or on the sheets, text one. It's an excerpt from Torah Or. The book Torah Or is a collection of discourses authored by the Alter Rebbe, who also authored the Tanya. He has a lot of other discussions in other books, and one of his other books are, is Torah Or. Torah Or is actually not a book that he wrote. It's just a transcription of discourses that he orally relayed. And he says something interesting. He says, the purpose of Gehinnom is to refine the soul and rid it of any negativity that it contracted. In other words, Gehinnom, again, is not so much a punishment as it is just a cleansing process that happens to be uncomfortable. It's like when you go to the dentist and they're about to give you some sort of shot and you know, they're about to do something to you. You say, is it going to hurt? He says, oh, it's gonna, you're going to experience discomfort. <laughs> they don't want to tell you it's going to be painful. You'll experience discomfort. Gehenna is, is uncomfortable, right? The purpose is to refine the soul of any negativity that it contracted. This is similar to the process of smelting silver, wherein the dross, dross or dross, um, is burned away in a furnace, leaving the silver clean without, any, without impurities. So when you go and mine silver or gold and all these different minerals, right? You don't just dig up a block of silver. It's this dirty rock that has to be cleaned and you use fire to clean it. It's not a punishment to the silver. You're, you're refining it. You're polishing it. So too for the soul to be able to process the supernal pleasures in heaven, for it to be able to take the light in God's radiance it must first be refined in the fires of Gehenna, wherein the good is separated from the bad. Shake me. Is that is that the shake me part? That's not the shake me part. So how does what is the good and the bad? Is that just in mind, or is it body and mind? The good. So the shake part. That that's for good. That's that's for negativity. That's not. You know, it's just external dirt. You could shake it off, but sometimes dirt gets enmeshed. Right? Certain, sometimes dirt's in your carpet, on your carpet, and you can just blow it off. Sometimes it's enmeshed in your carpet, and you need a real steaming. Right? And that's, so, and that's things, so basically prohibited activity that is a sore that is bound needs to actually get hand. I'm shaking won't suffice. But how do you, so, so is it just the mind that's being cleansed, or is it the body and the mind? Or is all considered one? Um, good question. In other words, is this cleansing happening to the, happening to the body, to the soul? It's happening to the soul. To okay, the soul. I'm actually, I'm glad you asked that. We'll read an excerpt from the Talmud, which actually gives an incredible shift in how we understand hell and how we understand Gehenna. Gehenna is really a perspective. The way the Talmud frames it, it's a perspective. Let's take a look. Um, on text two on our sheets here. It's an excerpt from the Talmud tractate of Oda Zarah, page 3b. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakesh says, There is no Gehinnom in the world to come. Rather, the Holy One, blessed be He God, will remove the sun from its sheath. Means this metaphorically, where it is situated in these times, and it heats the world with it. 
The wicked will be punished by it and consumed by its heat, but the righteous will be healed by it. It is written, for behold, the day comes and it burns as a furnace. So the sun comes out, and the sun can either, if, if you were conducting yourself right, preparing yourself right, putting on the right sunscreen and lotions, the sun is going to be vitamin D. It's going to be healing. But if a person has not been preparing himself, the sun is going to burn him. And it's not a punishment as much as it is a consequence. And it's that's, the same. That's almost describing hell. That, that's the idea of what hell is. Hell is, might be the same place as heaven. It's just, what state are you in? So let's take a look at text three. Text three is the Maharsha. The Maharsha is a commentary on the Talmud, and he comments on this passage of Talmud that we just read. The Maharsha, what was his actual name? Maharsha is an acronym of his name. His actual name was, I think, Rav Shlomo. He lived in, I'm trying to think of what year he lived in. It must have been, if I had to guess, might have been the 16 or 1700s. And he says this analogy, the analogy of the sun, was chosen because despite the sun's hot nature, its impact changes according to the recipient. In other words, the sun comes out. It's not going to say, oh, if you're evil, I'll burn you. And if you're righteous, I'll save you. And that's up to the recipient. It crystallizes salt and melts wax. But it's not changing its behavior toward the salt or toward the wax. Similarly, God will not execute bad or good, nor will he change his actions. Rather, it is dependent on the recipient. The wicked will be judged and the righteous will be healed by it. But the sun, right, God coming out and revealing himself. So if a person's been wicked, it's a, it's a weird, it's an awkward experience. Because I've been, I, and we'll talk about that soon, an interesting insight on that. Um, the Talmud quotes the verse, For behold, the day comes, it burns as a furnace. Because just as a furnace's primary function is to bake bread for the good of man, although it can also singe hay. Similarly, the purpose is for the righteous to be healed, although it can punish the wicked as well. Make sense? So it depends. So the heat is individualized. Depending on the person, yeah. The heat is the same heat. Right, but it's individualized how much heat you receive. Well, well, it's individualized on what the heat does to you. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah, in other words, you turn the oven on 400, and if you put a mixture of flour and water, you're going to get bread, and if you put in wax, you're going to melt. So it depends on what we've been doing with our lives. How am I going to experience God? Right? God, the sun, the light comes out. And how am I going to experience this? Am I ready for it? Right? When Mashiach comes, and as Maimonides says, based on the verse in Isaiah, the whole world will come to know God intimately because God will reveal himself. How comfortable of an experience will that be? And actually... The al the author of the Tanya, in one of his other works, gives another analogy for the idea of hell. He says, imagine somebody has been in his home, and he's walking around in his home naked, thinking that nobody's watching him, right? He thought that he, he had these tinted, his, his windows were tinted. Little did he know they were tinted from his view, not from the outside. He couldn't see out. He didn't realize people could see in. 
right? So his window is tinted. He thinks nobody sees him. He walks around naked. And then he discovers that everybody sees him. It's not a punishment, but it's awkward, right? When God, when we, uh, one day we'll come to this realization that God is everywhere. And God sees everything that we do. God cares about everything we do. He really does. He cares. It could be uncomfortable. And that discomfort is not a punishment as much as it is just a consequence of our, our behavior. We realize, oh my gosh, God is, sees me the whole time. He's intimately part with me the whole time. In the blessing that precedes the Shema, we recite it on a daily basis on Shabbos too. You know the song we sing? So one of the verses, one of the lines we say is, right? We say, God, please do not allow us to become embarrassed. The, the simple explanation of that verse, of that line, is, God, please don't let us be embarrassed of other people. We want to carry out your will. We shouldn't be embarrassed in front of people. But the deeper explanation if you unmask the layers of Torah, the more esoteric explanation is, God, let us not become embarrassed in front of you. Let us realize in the first place that you are so present and see us. Let us be aware of your presence and not come to do something that's going to bring us to embarrassment. Because that's kind of what Gehenna is. God reveals himself. The sun comes out. Right? The oven is on. Is it going to heal me? Is it going to give me vitamin D? Or is it going to be uncomfortable for me? Right? God reveals himself. Am I going to be proud of what I've been doing? Or am I going to be uncomfortable with what I've been doing? And if I'm uncomfortable, it's not a punishment. It's just a cleansing process. I have to go through that discomfort, that purgatory, that purging process so I can fully experience a closer relationship with God. But what happens if you're, let's say, an adult or and you're also a doctor? On one hand, you broke a commandment. But on the other hand, you saved lives. So it's kind of... Broke a commandment of what? Pardon me? What do you mean by broken a commandment? Well, let's say you were an adulterer, you cheated on your wife. But you were also a doctor who saved lives. So what side of Gehenna would you go to? Or could you be in both? No, it's, it's both. It, a person is rewarded for their, their, for their good activity. And a person is, I, I should say, compensated for the good and compensated for the bad. Right? I, in other words, I've been rolling around in the dirt. And I also gave charity. I still have to take a shower. The fact that I gave charity is a beautiful thing. Doesn't mean I don't need a shower. Right? Okay. But good question. Good question. In other words, the good and bad don't necessarily cancel out each other. It's a good question. Okay. So the end of our chapter... Is discusses what you know. There's negative activity that we just spoke about. There's idle chatter that we spoke about. Now, what about secular knowledge? How does secular knowledge impact us? So, if I study Torah, my mind is being used for a holy thing. 
But if I study secular knowledge, depending on what the knowledge is, what the information is, and what it's being used for, assuming that I'm doing it for my own self, or I shouldn't say for my own self, assuming that it's not God-oriented, if it is God-oriented, we'll get there in a second, but let's say it's not God-oriented. Let's say it's animal soul-oriented. So that's a lot worse than something like idle chatter because idle chatter is just something you're doing. But secular knowledge, it's something you're intellectually pursuing. So it hits you in a very deep spot and it impacts your soul in a very deep way, in a deeper way, in a less superficial way. Because now my mind, my heart is engaged in klipa and this negativity. Not just my mouth. I'm not just engaged behaviorally. I'm engaged and invested emotionally and intellectually. And the exception to that is if I'm doing it to make a parnasa, right, to make a living, and now that I can give charity, now I could do holy things, or if I'm doing it to actually broaden my understanding of Torah. Maimonides learned all the different uh, sciences of his time. So, does, so did Nachmanides and so did many of the, the great Jewish scholars because that brought, number one, they were able to save lives. Maimonides was a physician. But number two, it also broadened their understanding of Torah. Would you describe how would you describe a veterinarian? Um, that's a good. Well, well, first of all, it's it's to make a parnasa, it makes money. I know that, but he, he does have. Um, he's treating God's creatures. Treating God's creatures. Maybe that's considered a holy thing. Maybe. Interesting. So, d does this mean we're not supposed to read for fun? Is that what it boils down to? That's a good question. To say you're not supposed to, it's not, a, it? it's not a prohibition. Okay. But and is that it, what this is talking about? Like reading for fun? Um, that could be an example. And I'll, I'll put it this way. I wouldn't tell you don't read for fun. What I would tell you is what you're reading for fun, try to find some sort of lesson in your relationship with God from it. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, try to get some sort of divine benefit from it so you could elevate it. Right. So don't read trashy novels. Exactly. If it's, if it's something inappropriate. Right. Um, I don't know how that, I don't know if that, maybe that shouldn't be elevated. And if it's something that's idolatrous, it, it shouldn't be read. But if it's something that is just fun, if it's something that's educational, something that's stimulating, beautiful. Let's find a way that we can get some sort of divine lesson from it, something that we can learn from it, something that we can contribute to the world with it to make it holy. Make sense? Um, and, and that's kind of why the Maimonides, Nachmanides, and many scholars throughout history um, studied more, you know, way beyond other things beyond Torah. There, there was a famous, there, one of the sages of the Talmud, let me check my notes, I forgot his name. I think it was Rava or Rav. He was a he was studying the laws of of kashrut, which parts of the animal are kosher, and how to slaughter and all these different things. And it's a very you know it's very easy for your study to be academic. But if you're studying about an animal, but you never looked at an animal, you're not going to know what the what the law is, what the ruling is. You know, for me to read in the Talmud, this part of the animal is kosher, this part isn't. But I've never seen an animal, <laughs> so it says that he lived on a barn for like. 11 or 12 months to study animals so he can understand the laws of kosher animals better and to understand the parts of the animals better it broadened his understanding in Torah and, and so different things that we're reading for fun go for it 
and try to make it holy, try to find some sort of divine lesson, inspiration, some way to contribute to God's world with it. So the poor 14-year-old kid who's in high school who has reached adulthood, has had bar bat mitzvah, and now is told to study his history, his history books, um, you're not going to be able to do much godly about reading about the American Revolution. Um, or are you earning a living? Well, first of all, you get a diploma, which earns you a living. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, second of all, I don't know, maybe you could. History ha has value to it. I don't know. So we don't repeat the yeah, history bad repeats itself. History. Right. But maybe you're right. Maybe he shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe is that why in some of the ultra orthodox communities in New York, um, maybe elsewhere too, they don't have their children study secular subjects? Yeah. Correct. Correct. Now, personally, I would disagree, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't think. I mean, this is my own opinion. I don't think learning how to write and speak the language of your country is necessarily secular. I think that's more practical. Yeah. You know, you need to know how to sign a check. <laughs> it's a necessity. Yeah, yeah. You, you, need, you need basic mathematics just to figure out the, the cost of soup at the supermarket. Exactly. So I, 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 in other words, how do you draw the line? What is secular? What is practical? What is divine? And what's it all being used for? I guess everybody has to talk to their rabbi. <laughs> You'll be bombarded with questions. <laughs> You're welcome to reach out to me. But, but, but Cheryl, you asked a good question. It's a very practical question. Is it appropriate to read for fun? Is it appropriate to, uh, what, uh, what, what level is it important? Is it appropriate to engage ourselves in other things besides Torah? Right, because I can think about some books that I've read in the past and I'm like, uh, you know, having this discussion, like, oh, maybe that was not a good choice. So what do I do with the fact that I made poor choices on some of the books I'm reading? But there's one book I'm reading now, which is a controversial book, but I want to learn about why it's so controversial. So I would say that that's probably a better choice because I'm learning about what, what made this book be so controversial. Yeah. And, and if you could, you know, if that broadens your, your mind and your understanding, if that helps your understanding of Torah and of Judaism and of your relationship with God, and that makes us, you know, it's all, if it's all part of the process, it's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Yeah. I know, per, look, personally, I'm, you know, I'm studying a degree in marriage and family therapy. Um, it's, it's secular knowledge. It is. Most of it's not based on the Torah. Now, you could find a lot of ideas in the Torah, but I'm saying, but the actual studying is not studying Torah. But it's used for, it can be used for a holy thing. Number one, saving relationships. Very holy thing. Um, number two, Parnassa, a very holy thing. <laughs> Earning a living. Earning a living is a very holy thing. <laughs> An important mitzvah. <laughs> yeah, or, you can, or else you have to teach Musia to not like food. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, we thank you for it. Thank you. This was a this was a good chat.